are about to listen to is a podcast produced by Philoclea Ministries. Philoclea Ministries is offered to all free of charge. However, there are real and immediate needs associated with it. If you are a regular listener or enjoy any of the content produced by Philoclea Ministries, we humbly ask that you consider becoming a contributor. You can learn more about our funding needs at www.philocleaministries.org. Please note that Philoclea Ministries is not a 401c3 nonprofit organization and that contributions are not tax deductible. Supporting Philoclea Ministries is just like supporting your other favorite podcasters and content creators, and all proceeds pay the production bills, make it possible for us to pay our content manager, and provide a living stipend for Father David. God bless you and enjoy the podcast. Glory to Jesus Christ, glory forever. Welcome back, everybody, to our study of the latter divine ascent by St. John Climacus. And we're coming to the end of step 16 on uh, purity of heart and chastity, uh, just the last paragraph or two. Uh, before we move on to step, I'm sorry, that's step 15 we're finishing. And then we'll be moving on to step 16 on the love of money or avarice. And uh, in this, John Climacus is following the traditional order of the capital sins or what are often called the eight vices. So gluttony, lust, avarice. And uh, but he'll be talking here again in his typical form of putting questions to the passion itself in order to see what its origins are and how one might overcome it. And uh, the uh, it's a pretty bleak image, I'm sad to say. Uh, it's not an e easy thing to overcome. None of them are uh, without great effort. So we're on paragraph 88 at the very bottom of page 154, if I remember correctly. If I bind him by fasting, by condemning my neighbor, I am handing over, I am handed over to him again. So if we're able to gain control of our gluttoning, of our uh, overeating, uh, very quickly we are brought down by our harsh judgment of our neighbor for some offense imagined or real, that we turn a sharp eye towards them rather than towards ourselves and maintaining control over the passion. And again, so it's pride rideth before the fall, that the moment our eye turns towards another in a harsh way, lacking charity, we're overcome once again. If desisting from judgment, I overmaster him, then being proud of this, I am subjected to him again. So being, we can become proud, he tells us over the mere fact that we have gained some freedom over the passion. And the moment, again, that we do that, uh, we come under his control once again. For he is an ally and a foe, an assistant and a rival, a defender and a traitor. If I humor him, he attacks me. If I exhaust him, he gets feeble. When he is rested, he becomes unruly. If I turn away in loathing, he cannot bear it. If I mortify him, I endanger myself. If I strike him down, I have nothing with which to obtain virtues. I both embrace him and I turn away from him. 
So again, beautifully written. I find the Desert Fathers almost poetic, again, in how they describe things. But the, the body and the desires of the flesh are both foe and ally, that we have a hunger for food that gives us strength then to, to act uh, in virtuous ways, act in charitable ways. Uh, but if we give it free reign, it'll very easily and quickly overcome us uh, through indulgence. Uh, but if we restrain it too harshly, then we can weaken the body through fasting and make ourselves sick and so incapable of maintaining our prayer role, uh, let alone serving others in charity. And so it's an interesting relationship that we have to maintain uh, with, with ourselves as human beings, that we have to recognize both the power and the weakness that rests within us, that in and through the body that God has given to us and through our senses, we're able to encounter great and beautiful things and accomplish great and beautiful things for God. Uh, but uh, we can also, uh, because of our sin, uh, allow those appetites to be directed simply towards satisfying ourselves. And so give ourselves things in great abundance uh, beyond our need. And uh, so spiritually become more vulnerable to the temptations of the evil one. And, uh, and so we, we see within the life of the church, this kind of beautiful balance that is maintained um, especially in the East, of you know, rigorous fasting that involves uh, long periods of abstinence from certain foods, in particular the rich foods that often can weigh us down and make prayer difficult, uh, and times where we eat nothing until we break the fast, uh, but also times of feasting, you know, when we are able to relax the uh, the tension that exists there uh, in order that we might not weaken ourselves too much, that we have to look at life in some sense as a marathon, uh, but also something that's over very quickly. So we have to keep this balance for ourselves that in our struggles, we have to realize we have to have the strength to persevere, to endure, uh, but not live as though we're going to live forever. And so give no mind to what's going on internally. And so both ally and foe. And this brings John to say in paragraph nine, what is this mystery in me? What is the meaning of this bind, or I'm sorry, this blending of body and soul? How am I constituted a friend and foe to myself? Tell me, tell me my yoke fellow, my nature. For I shall not walk, shall not ask anyone else in order to learn about you. How am I to remain unwounded by you? How can I avoid the danger of my nature? For I have already made a vow to Christ to wage war against you. How, how am I over to over, overcome your tyranny? For I am resolved to, to be your master. Uh, the first thing that sort of caught my attention was that I shall not ask anyone else in order to learn about you. And again, again, this is part of the mystery of being a human being. Each of us has our particular strengths and weaknesses, uh, our needs, particular needs, uh, certain constitution, certain vulnerabilities. And so we can't ask somebody else uh, what needs to be done. In a way, we really have to strive to know ourselves well. 
and where our weaknesses and vulnerabilities lie, our tendencies, uh, habits of behavior, the moments that we are vulnerable to gluttony, uh, or the ways that we are perhaps too strident in the way that we treat ourselves and don't give ourselves enough. And so the attention has to be on the self, uh, partly because of what I just said, the mystery of who we are, as he describes it, but also that we don't uh, cast a disparaging eye towards another. You know, I think whenever we begin to examine others or ask them in particular, uh, that we can be, become harsh with them or compare ourselves to them. And so, you know, in his mind, how am I to overcome this? If to Christ himself, I've vowed to wage war against you and against you because of this tendency towards gluttony. Number 90, and the flesh might say in reply to its soul, I shall never tell you anything which you do not know equally well, but only of things of which we both have knowledge. I have my father within me, self-love. The fire which I experience from without comes from humoring me and from general comfort. The fire which burns within and the movement of thoughts come from the past ease and bygone deeds. Having conceived, I give birth to sins, and they, when born, in turn, beget death by despair. If you clearly know the profound weakness which is in both you and me, you have bound my hands. If you starve your appetite, you have bound my feet from going further. If you take the yoke of obedience, you have thrown off my yoke. If you obtain humility, you've cut off my head. So John, the way that he constructs his steps, I think is just magnificent. Always the definition, multiple examples, and how they manifest themselves, and then remedies that are often tied to this kind of uh, scrutinizing of the passion itself and examining it, demanding uh, an explanation. And this one is, is quite beautiful, that you will have no knowledge other than what I, I have or that we both have, that I don't have great any more knowledge of you than you, uh, because I'm so uniquely tied to who you are. And so we are, we are one in that sense. And so you know very well. And the only way that you don't know it is feigned ignorance or ignorance that comes through negligence or indulgence. But otherwise, if you are, are struggling, you are going to see how I work and see how very clearly I act upon you and where your weaknesses lie. But at the very heart of it, the father of this, uh, uh, of this passion, or it says in the footnote, some versions read mother, uh, the one who gives birth to it is self-love where you know, we treat ourselves too tenderly and we aren't willing to exercise ourselves in the faith through fasting and through seeking to, to bind our appetites and to be vigorous about that. And uh, we've talked many times about how we are often minimalist about the practice in particular of fasting and that the sheer abundance of food 
that is available to us uh, can make it very difficult. The, we can end up grazing daily and not giving thought to such things as uh, the richness of certain foods or the amount that we eat, the, the, the times that we eat and portions uh, that we, we give ourselves. So all, all of this we aren't very attentive to. And so he says, the fire which I experience from without comes from humoring me and from general comfort. And so when we treat lightly and even sort of laugh about it, you know, that, and we often do that at Thanksgiving in particular, that, you know, people fall into, you know, a food coma and we do that around other events too and sort of laugh about the times that we overeat uh, and sort of make a little joke about it. Uh, but beyond this, humoring me in the sense of uh, giving me what I want. It's sort of like a dog that's begging. And even though you know it's eaten a whole bowl full of dog food, the fact that it's jumping up and down on you, you want to, to comfort it or uh, please it in some way or another. And this appetite can be very much like that. You know, dogs have, will eat until they puke, some of them. And, uh, and this, our appetites can be like that. It takes often a while for our minds to catch up to our stomachs, especially when we eat very quickly. We'll eat that second hamburger and then 10 minutes later think, I should not have eaten that second hamburger <laughs> and then be writhing in pain for the rest of the evening. Uh, the fire which burns within and the movement of thoughts comes from past ease and bygone deeds. So within us, uh, we, we have the times that we've given ourselves over uh, to excess and this kind of uh, love and desire that we have for food and certain foods, you know, our memory of their taste uh, can remain in the mind and draw us back to them. And, you know, one of certainly one of our stronger senses is our sense of taste. And the memory of that can stay with us for a long time. You know, whenever we've had something extra special, uh, you know, people, there's a kind of sound people make when they eat something uh, that is especially delicious. You know, it's like an ecstasy sound. And, you know, I think it also speaks to uh, the memory of that that we hold in our mind. And it's funny to think about that, that we remember what it is that we've eaten and what pleased us, even if we're not conscious of that. And so there's, there's times where we think that eating in excess or eating especially rich foods, uh, you know, just lighten up a little bit, you know, it's not going to cause any harm. I think. What John is saying here is that we even have our memory even holds on to things such as that which will pull us down easily into excess. And so we even have to be careful in that regard. Having conceived, I give birth to sins and they, when born, in turn beget death by despair. And so, you know, when we fall into uh, this kind of gluttony, and fall into the uh, sins that it gives rise to, uh, often we can 
fall into this kind of despondency and despair, uh, in particular sins of the flesh, uh, the, the other bodily appetite. And so uh, by being unrestrained in what we eat, we can naturally fall into unchastity. And, uh, and then before you know it, into despair. If you clearly know my profound weakness, which is both you and me, you have bound my hands. If you starve your appetite, you have bound my feet from going further. If you take my yoke of obedience, you have thrown off my yoke and obt obtain humility, you cut off my head. So in, in regards to gluttony and, and lust, that we, we see the same thing emerge in regards to these appetites and, uh, and what overcomes them. So obedience, uh, that we bind ourselves to a particular role that we create for ourselves in regarding to eat, or we sacrifice our will uh, to an abbot and, uh, or uh, a religious elder. And these things help prevent us from becoming willful in other areas, whether it's with food, as we've talked about, or here with uh, unchastity or uh, lustful thoughts. And then, but humility is always cuts off the head that when we are truthful with ourselves, when we see the ways that we are negligent, or when we see the ways that we are inattentive to thoughts, uh, that come to mind, or when we expose ourselves that give rise uh, to lustful thoughts or desires within the heart, then uh, when we, we're honest about that and humbly acknowledge it before God, then uh, we're, we're going to overcome it altogether. It, there's an illusion that we often struggle with in the spiritual life that by sheer strength of our own will, that we can overcome gluttony or lust. And humility leads us to recognize the mystery and the power of these two appetites, gluttony and lust. And that uh, only by clinging to God and his grace, humbling ourselves are they overcome and ordered. Uh, the moment that we slip back into thinking that we could manage what John calls here, this, these deep mysteries uh, of who we are, then uh, we're going to quickly be overcome by them. Um, you know, the, how he described uh, the appetite here, in particular, sexual appetite is uh, that, you know, both, you know, it's part of this mystery, both, but al both ally and foe that we don't overcome things through a kind of self-hatred or hatred of creation or what we become. Uh, sometimes psychologically people have been through trauma in their life and uh, uh, even very early on in their life where they can come to hate various aspects of being a human being, like hate the idea that the fact that any gender exist, that they have to deal with even the thought of that reality in themselves. Uh, it's not simply gender dysphoria, 
you know, which seems to be in, in the news a lot these days, but uh, it can be a, a kind of hatred of the reality of, of gender altogether and what goes along with it, you know, the humbling features of it. And, uh, and so a person can get to a point if they, they fall into that, uh, can fall into a kind of despair, a hatred of life, you know, a feeling that the only way to get away from this is to destroy the self. And what begins to emerge at times is even things like self-harm, you know, of creating a pain that is deep enough to sort of pull a person out of the emotional pain that they're experiencing in regards to thoughts about these things. That something makes it, say, somebody who hates their gender, a woman who hates uh, any gender at all, but somebody refers to her uh, by uh, even her first name, her given name, and uh, something is triggered or stirred there, and it can give rise to these kind of, uh, uh, what would they want, parasuicidal acts, you know, the self cutting and mutilation that's very deep and scarring, but it kind of creates this pain that alters one's internal emotional state. And, uh, and so, you know, the counsel that John gives here about both seeing it as a mystery, but ally and foe, that these realities of who we are as human beings are also what give, give us the capacity to love and to live our lives, to serve God and to serve others. And so we have to allow and seek to allow them to be transformed and transfigured by the grace of God and by the life of prayer. And so finally he writes, if the 15th reward, this is the 15th reward of victory, he who has received it will still, while still living in the flesh, has died and risen and from now on experiences the foretaste of future immortality. So begins to experience a kind of incorruption uh, that uh, exists with the, the risen body, that there is an order there, that one does not experience that poverty, that weakness of will. Any questions on this step? in particular before we move to Avarice. Anybody typing here? Yes, Louise. An amazing movie just came out called Sound of Freedom. I've heard people talk about it, about combating child sex trafficking. Being a trauma therapist myself, I can only fathom that pedophilia is due to demonic influence. These people are untreatable. What are your thoughts? Yeah, I think it's pretty much been proven that they're untreatable, uh, albeit uh, too late. And I think uh, there is something demonic about it because of the abuse of uh, those who are vulnerable, the most vulnerable, in fact, and the grooming that takes place, that the conscience, one has to say, becomes so darkened uh to the point where that it seemed to be a good thing and uh that they're almost doing the child a service 
uh, in abusing them in this fashion. And uh, in some ways, I, I feel that maybe we've trusted too much, and maybe this is where kind of arrogance of pride came in and trusted in human wisdom, because uh, the psychology and the field of psychology begins to develop and develop forms of treatment for a whole host of things and that can bear fruit. And then also the rise of psych psychopharmacology, you know, different ways of treating mental illness. And I, th I think there was this sense that this could be treated. And in fact, it was the church looked to the professionals to say, you know, okay, after a certain period of time, is this per person capable of not only entering back into the world, but back into ministry where they might be, uh, they might have access to, to children. Whereas again, when we look back at the, the spiritual tradition, even a thousand years earlier, we see this being treated in a much different way uh, as, as being non treatable, that there was, uh, you know, again, a kind of uh, criminal punishment that was meted out, uh, but spiritual as well for years on end, and then never to go out except in the company of two other, say, if they're a member of a religious community, never to go out or anywhere except in the company of two brothers of the community. So never to be left alone, really. Uh, because of the nature of, of the sin and the darkness of it. And uh, I've mentioned here the, the Lineker Institute did an independent study. Uh, it's not a religious organization, but they did a study of pedophilia after all this emerged within the life of the church. And one of the, the things they mention is this breakdown of asceticism in the life of the church that existed far earlier than the, the Second Vatican Council. So we don't want to go there and say it's the Second Vatican Council that's responsible for this, but this sort of being unmoored from this ascetical tradition of ordering the appetites and especially those that are most powerful. And if you have celibate clergy who are, you know, uh, where there isn't the typical and natural outlet for that of, of marriage uh, and the experience of intimacy in uh, marriage relationship uh, that, you know, it could be dealt with in a number of different ways. Sublimation would be the, perhaps the most positive element of it, but also, but sometimes it can simply be uh, not only the desire, but the distorted and sick desire can be repressed and emerge in a far more uh, violent kind of way. Because when repressed, nothing is being done with it, not in, in the sense of treating it in any way. And so it can emerge. It can be cloaked in religiosity, perhaps for a while. You know, we've talked about religious delusion often being the most powerful of delusions and can become a cloak for uh, great disorder. And uh, we'll see John talk about that in regards to avarice and insensibility, a kind of hardness of heart that, uh, that uh, leads to this insensitivity to uh, rea uh, spiritual realities. Uh, by the way, there's a couple comments here. I should address them all. It was a very informative and well done film yeah, I, I've, 
I heard over and over again that it's exceptional so I have to view it. Doesn't abuse of food or lust devalue these things. I know when I break a long fast, uh, water tastes sweeter, food is savored. And so when we truly develop love rather than just physical attraction or objectification, the diamond is often hidden by the dirt on the outside. Uh, yes, and I think this is what I mentioned earlier, that there is within the life of the church this kind of balance of not demonizing these elements of whether it's sexuality or food, that we have our periods of fasting and abstinence, but also of feasting. And uh, that it does, I, I think, heighten the, the celebration and the joy that is experienced. And fasting, and in particular, the Eucharist, transforms the way that we look at food. And, uh, and so we, I don't think we're meant to see it as uh, demonic and that we should hate food. And I think that's what John says, you know, when somebody pushes themselves too far, and and so weakens the self then they aren't going to have this capacity to pray or to to love they're 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 going to be less than what god created them to be in the same way i think if we hate this part of us that is a mystery and a mystery that's so tied to desire and uh, i'm sorry for repeating myself again but we've talked about how the fathers mentioned the desire over and over again in their writings that it is essential for us as human beings and that it means sense of lack or incompleteness that we are created in a way uh, that makes us have a longing for love that only God can fulfill ultimately and all of our other desires sort of point to uh, this greatest desire and should be a reflection of it and uh but when they become disordered uh i think that's when <clears throat> the problem the problem emerges and so our answer as christians is not to become uh, stoics or and it's not to, to crush desire within us or to become unfeeling uh because then we lose our capacity to love and so what needs to take place is this, this directing and reshaping of desire by the grace of God through prayer, through the Holy Eucharist, and through, through all the means that have been given to us, uh, and also the gift of the Spirit that dwells within us, that what we are to be cultivating is this love and desire for God. And I think sometimes when we approach the spiritual life in, in a way that is too moralistic or too legalistic, and that does not emphasize the desire for God, this relational aspect, then when it comes time to disciplining ourselves, we don't enter into it either with, either with the right kind of zeal, seeing its real end, or we you know, have this kind of zeal that is really seeking simply to crush the self. And I think we see this in a lot of religious communities too in regards to obedience, you know, where there's a crushing of personality and, you know, have had to tell people over and over again, you know, religious communities aren't the Marines. And, uh, you know, I always looked, I love the Trappist 
And when I was a young man, I, I visited the Trappist and uh, when I was first discerning. And for me, they were, they were like the green berets of the religious. You know, they led this really ordered and strict life. And there was something that was appealing about that. Now, I'm not saying they don't have this kind of holy desire, but I think uh, we could fall into that trap of entering into the ascetic life simply in like we are training to have greater endurance. Uh, and it's more than that. We're training ourselves in order that our desires might be ordered toward God and our abandonment to him in order that we might become what he's, he desires us to be and how he's created us. Uh, and then Louise writes, by the way, 2.5 of priests abuse children sexually, 5% of physicians, 10% of school teachers, according to three studies. Yes, I've, I've heard similar things that uh, it's certainly not only within the clergy. I mean, it sh should not be happening there at all. And I think what has given rise to the not only the anguish, but the anger surrounding it is that it was it wasn't dealt with directly or you know priests were moved or that there wasn't this kind of transparency uh in regards to it you know cover cover-ups and things like that and i think that happens too in the area of psychotherapy uh i was so shocked by the number of psychotherapists that have sexual relations of some sort with their with their clients and so you know, we can't idealize any any area of life. I think, you know, every area has been touched by sin in one way or another. Art, you say, what do you mean, Father? And were you talking about something in particular or all oh, the, the Marines? Uh, Just the, a Marine reference. The, you, the, the, I can't make out the, the second. The few, yeah. the humble, the orthodox. The orthodox. <laughs> and, and you know, the funny thing about this picture is that instead of a rope, uh, it uses a prayer rope. Right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And, you know, I've, there are, uh, there is um, a strain among Eastern Orthodox Christians that have this view, and even East, Eastern Catholics too, that there are more fast days, that we're more rigorous, that our liturgies are longer. And there can be this sense that develops that the rigor alone is something uh, that is transformative. And unless it's shaped by the grace of God, again, it's sort of what Jesus says in the gospel. You know, if you if you fast in order to others see you fast, then that is your reward in full. So, you know, everybody sees you as a great faster or discipline, but that's all you're going to get. And so it's interesting, again, you know, to see how the fathers speak of even the deepest struggle uh, that humbles us so greatly, these last two steps, you know, chastity, lack of chastity, and, and, and then before it, uh, gluttony, that uh, even here, you know, not this self-hatred, but rather this self-discipline that is directed toward God. Okay. So why don't we move on to step number 16 on avarice. Uh, John seems a little surprised that this comes next in the order. 
but when you read Cassian, uh, I think he see he thinks it's perfectly clear that it is this appetite tied to material things, and that in some ways it can be even worse. Where glut if gluttony and lust don't overcome us, then avarice is something that is insatiable. The more you have, the more you want. And it can be, it can really take over uh, a soul as powerfully uh, as uh, gluttony and lust do. And sometimes it can seem even justifiable. You know, John talks about, as we will see, and I'll, I'll let him describe it, that it can often uh, emerge under the guise of charity you know, of raising money for the poor. Yet once the money gets in the hand, the grip tightens. Uh, because when we have that feel for having the extra cash, one wants to hold on to it. So love of money or avarice. After the tyrant just described, many learned teachers next treat of the thousand-headed demon of avarice. The thousand-headed demon. So this is what I was sort of indicating, that it can be uh, insatiable and insatiable because it can manifest itself in a thousand different ways and seek to be fed in a thousand different ways. We unlearned as we are did not wish to change the order of the learned and we have therefore followed the same convention and rule. So let us first say a little about the disease and then speak briefly about the remedy. Isn't that wonderful about the disease and then the remedy? It's, you know, again, so much the view of the church as a hospital and particular remedies being applied uh, to a specific illness. Uh, avarice or love of money is the worship of idols, a daughter of unbelief, an excuse for infirmities, a foreboder of old age, a harbinger of drought, a herald of famines. And so a worship of idols, that the things of the world around us, you know, in their glitter and their power uh, and their ability to sort of fascinate and entertain uh, become then objects of worship for us, that we become enamored with them and keep them close to heart. And the one that is, we probably all know is the, or most of us know would be the cell phone. Uh, you know, that it is, it becomes our means of connection uh, with the world around us. And so it becomes like an additional appendage, but something that we are gazing at. Television is often be, be called, you know, sort of like the devil's tabernacle kind of thing that we will sit before it for hours and gazing at it as one would sit before the Blessed Sacrament. Uh, a daughter of unbelief. So it gives birth to a weakening of, of our faith as we place greater faith in the things of this world to give us joy, to give us hope. It is so much that we take away from God. And so when we begin to undergo trials, uh, often we will first reach for the things of this world to comfort and console. You know, whether it's when we're in illness or having a bad day, you know, often before or just, you know, going through some struggle, God is the last one that we will turn to. 
if at all, that we will turn to television, turn to food, drink, whatever it might be for that comfort uh, to supposedly relax the mind. And, uh, and so when we do that, we're, we're showing greater faith in those things than we are in God to console us and give us what is needed in those moments. And again, not, not to demonize all of those things, but I think they become demons for us or they make us demons because we idolize them, you know, uh, and we use them inappropriately. Uh, an excuse for infirmities. And so they can make us lazy in so many different ways, uh, rather than taking up the effort of uh, trying to understand something, for example, one of the first things that we do is Google it. And uh, it's much easier than picking up a book and reading about it. And I was talking to one individual today about AI and uh, you know, it can be a fascinating thing you know, where you can get these uh, descriptions of things that are pr pretty accurate. And, uh, and, you know, what that holds out for us in the future. But I think we, we already sort of see it, that there can be a kind of laziness that we have in relying upon those things that seem to us to be more efficient or that bring things to us more quickly that there can be a value of slowly doing something with patience and attention uh, that is more manual. And in the past, I've mentioned one of those Trappists who was painting. And when the bell for prayer rang, he had like three foot of the ceiling left to paint. But the rule is, is that you drop what you're doing and you go to the chapel for prayer. And so he dropped everything and went to the chapel to pray. And then as, as everybody walked through this room, they could see this like three foot patch in the ceiling that was unpainted. But the idea there is that no matter what we are doing, uh, that uh, obedience has the greater value or that prayer has the greater value than the work of our hands. So one would not stay and skip prayer in order to finish painting a room. And yet so often in our minds, our, our daily labors can be exalted to this level of idolatry because they shape our identity so much for us that we will extend the amount of time working at them and, and diminish our prayer or even make it non-existent. You know, one of the things, you know, working in campus ministry for many years, one of the first things you hear is that I'm too busy. You know, I don't have time to go to daily mass or I don't have time for daily prayer uh, because I have so much going on in my life. And, um, you know, partly that's rooted in reality, you know, of studying and going to classes. But part of it is in a kind of negligence, inability to use time, the inability to prioritize things and make make time for what is uh, more of a source of strength and light for us. That I found that those students who, who prioritize prayer enter into their labors with less anxiety. 
and entering into those labors with less anxiety allows them to accomplish them with greater quickness. You know, that they uh, don't sit for hours looking at the same line uh, because they're filled with dread and fear. And in fact, you know, it's anxiety that leads to procrastination. You know, even though the person might be a hundred times more anxious the day before an assignment's done, procrastinating allows them to avoid that feeling of anxiety for all those other days that they don't do the, the work. And so, the, you know, the fact that sometimes we can do things quickly or swiftly can give rise to this kind of uh, an excuse for in, infirmity, not really being strong in character and how we approach our work in the way that we work. A foreboder of old age. Uh, so often it can be rooted in our fear of aging and finding ourselves in want and without uh, the care of others. And so individuals can be driven to the extreme to provide not just for their retirement, but 10 times over or you know, far more than what they, they need, you know, that they're never able to have peace in that regard because they fear what might happen to them. Harbinger of drought that um, you know, are clinging to these things and the diminishment of faith uh, then often uh, brings to us a drought spiritually, certainly a lack of consolation, uh, but it comes a harbinger, it can be a harbinger and herald of famines in regards to um, we can find ourselves in greater want uh, because we, we've prepared ourselves for life and the realities of life in the wrong way, that inevitably suffering is going to be a part of life, that we are going to experience uh, a diminishment of our faculties, a diminishment of our physical strength over time, or we're going to get sick, we're going to get cancer, something along those lines. And when we reach that state, nobody is going to be able to give us faith. Nobody's going to be able to give us trust in God who alone can console us that our life is more than the things of this world. And uh, think back to, again to the story of the, the wise virgins and the unwise virgins, you know, the ones who did not bring oil for their lamps. Give us some of your oil. And, you know, the wise virgins say, no, <laughs> we can't do that. Uh, when the bridegroom comes, when the time comes to meet him. And it's not like we can run around looking for faith or ask to borrow somebody else's faith. It's not how it works. It's rooted in a relationship that is fostered over time. And so, you know, if we spent all of our energy in the pursuit of the things of this world rather than the pursuit of God, then we are going to know uh, an emptiness, a famine like perhaps we've never imagined. The lover of money sneers at the gospel and is a willful transgressor. He who has attained to love scatters his money, 
but he who says that he lives for love and for money has deceived himself. So uh, the one who's attained love is going to be often the most generous despite their circumstances uh, and despite perhaps their poverty. Whereas the one who is the lover of money is going to sneer at it and often cling to it the most. Ask uh, waitresses and waiters sometimes who the most generous tippers are. It's not necessarily those who are the most wealthy. You know, sometimes those who know great want or have struggled in life can be end up being the most generous understanding the, the circumstances of another or don't question offering that tip if the service was good and even that in abundance. Uh, or, you know, the woman, the perfect gospel image is the, and he'll bring, uh, make reference to this, who throws in her final two copper coins for the upkeep of the temple. And if you remember, this is what draws Jesus to his feet and says, look there, that, that's the love of the kingdom. She threw in everything that she had her last two copper coins for the sacrifices and the upkeep of the, of the temple. And so Christ is trying to tell us something there that you know, our lavish love and service of others and uh, generosity to others comes back to us a hundredfold uh, in ways that we can't imagine, often because our, our focus is locked upon the things of this world or our fears of what our, our fate might be within this world. He who mourns for himself has also renounced his body and at the appropriate time, he does not spare it. So, you know, one who mourns for himself is uh, going to be the one who's penitential is is not going to spare his body he's not going to pamper it nor is he going to cling to the things of this world that allow him to pamper it uh but he's going uh to live on what is simply on what is needed and at the appropriate time he does not spare it so he's willing the one who's who who loves god above all is in the moment when he might be called to make that ultimate sacrifice is not going to hesitate. So if we do not cling to the things of this world and come, have come to see them as dust, as rubbish, then, uh, you know, if called to make the opposite sacrifice, one is going to say, here I am, Lord, you know, take me uh, without any hesitation. This is the tough one. Do not say that you are collecting money for the poor. With two mites, the kingdom was purchased. And this is the reference uh, that to the elderly lady who threw in her two copper coins, that uh, collecting money for the poor, you know, this can feed, again, one's ego, one's pride. It can be condescending. I'm doing this for the poor. So it's done in this kind of self-conscious way where one is overly aware of what one is giving 
uh, or of the sacrifice that is being made, where we're not to let the left hand know what the right hand is doing uh, in such matters. And so under the guise of collecting money for the poor, we can often lose sight. Look, this poorest individual gave everything. And even in our guise of being a philanthropist, we might not give to this point where it actually cost us anything. It could be a write-off. It could be, uh, you know, we could just be giving out of that abundance rather than out of love. So again, you know, this is where we come back to Therese saying, you know, do not be, love does not calculate. And so often, even in our virtues or something like, charitable given, giving, we can be calculating and not really have a love for the poor. You know, you can keep the poor at arm's distance and raise a ton of money uh, to, to support them. A hospital, hospitable man uh, and a money lover met one another and the latter called the former undiscerning. So the lover of money is always going to find a, you know, abundance of reasons not to be hospitable to the point of seeking to care for and take care of the other, uh, regardless of the cost. Uh, so a hospitable person is always going to have an eye to one who's suffering or in need and is again, not going to overcalculate, overanalyze. It's going to respond first to the need to the person, but in the eyes of one who loves money, you know, that he's going to see it as undiscerning. Well, you really aren't thinking this through. You know, if you give this much, then, you know, how are you going to, you know, take care of yourself or maintain your particular lifestyle? He who has conquered this passion has cut out care, but he who is bound by it never attains to pure prayer. So interesting that, uh, you know, while we don't want to romanticize poverty, uh, that a person though, who has freed himself from clinging to material things for any reason, finds a kind of internal peace in clinging to God and the richness of what he gives. And so out of that emerges pure prayer, perfect prayer. The more that one relies upon God and clings to him, the more perfect one's prayer becomes. Uh, the more that we rely upon the things of this world and rest in them, uh, often the weaker our prayer becomes or non-existent. And again, there are subtle ways, you know, when we do that, you know, overwork, over busyness, uh, over concern, you know, about the future. All these things can hobble us in uh, not only in greed in the way that we typically think about it. It can hobble us in terms of it's an impact upon our, our prayer life and our relationship with God. The beginning of love of money is the pretext of almsgiving. And the end of it is hatred of the poor. So long as he is collecting, uh, as he is collecting, the, uh, 
he is charitable, but when the money is in hand, he tightens his grip. So, you know, there when we see we see this, you know, oftentimes religious people can become corrupted, you know, stealing from the church, stealing from the poor box, you know, that or any number of things like that, that there can be something seductive. You know, you, you hear about priests or nuns going off to the casinos, you know, making these lavish trips, you know, uh, by embezzling money from the church savings. And so uh, if there is this kind of attachment, it doesn't take much then for it to become, you know, it starts out, you know, asking people to give for charity. But when the money is there, it can be incredibly seductive. You know, think about how much easier my life would be, or maybe I deserve this. I work so hard and I'm paid so little for working for the church. And so I deserve a little extra here on, on the side. And, you know, all kinds of rationalization can begin to emerge. And, uh, and so the, gr the grip tightens on the money. That's why in smart churches, they never have, you know, they have, have a group of people count the money together and take it to the bank and deposit it, you know, as a way of protecting themselves and others from that temptation. I've seen how men of scant means enriched themselves by living with the poor in spirit and forgot their first poverty. So enriched themselves by living with the poor in spirit that they forget their first poverty, that is the po real poverty of clinging to the things of this world or thinking that their, their value or their happiness is dependent upon those things. When they come into the presence and live among those who are truly poor in spirit, who love God above all things, they forget that original poverty, the deeper poverty. And, you know, this is you know, Mother Teresa said, you know, it's the people in the West that are the truly poor ones, you know, that uh, poor spiritually, that makes us uh, cling to those things. And partly it is because of our abundance uh, that we come, become blind to the need of others. And that's the poverty that we need to address. And so, you know, you think of people having encounters with someone like Mother Teresa and how life-changing that can be, not only in meeting her, but I think in seeing how she engaged the poor. I remember the first movie or documentary I saw on her, you know, taking care of a young boy who was very sick and just like rubbing him on the chest to comfort him. And the look in his eyes and uh, the expression on her face as she was engaged in this. Uh, but certainly she's not the only one. And it's not only religious people who do this. Uh, there's a more recent video. It's uh, called the, uh, I think it's called the, the Male Mother Teresa or something. It's on YouTube, but it's an Indian man who owned a restaurant, was a chef. But one day, you know, there's this whole class system where you can't, you're not supposed to have contact with certain groups of people altogether. But one day driving along, he saw someone so poor that he was eating his own skin like picking off flakes of his own skin and eating it. And he was so moved by this is that he sells his restaurant 
and began to cook for, for the poor every day, to bathe them, to shave them. You know, it was this re realization of the fact that he was able to drive by another human being who breathed as he did, who's, you know, had the same amount of blood in his, his veins as he did, to drive by them every day and yet see them as less than, than human beings that transformed his life. So if you have the opportunity uh, to watch it, it's something that's truly extraordinary. There's one question here or a quote. Uh, Ashley writes, I am friends with many people who are constantly worried about money, about their paychecks, jobs, et cetera, and it prevents them from choosing to move forward in their potential vocations. So they put it off and put it off and put it off. I think some of the downsides of our culture and even the mindset of many who come out of universities today is this absolute concern about climbing the ladder in their jobs or this habit formed to always looking for greener grass or better opportunities. And this demand of function over substance makes me think of the quote of C.S. Lewis. In a sort of ghastly simplicity, we remove the organ and demand the function. We make men without chest and expect of them virtue and enterprise. We laugh at honor and are shocked to find traitors in our midst. We castrate and bid the geldings to be fruitful. Beautifully put in, a, in both parts, what you wrote and what uh, C.S. Lewis wrote. And it's true, you know, I think the putting off of life and living to follow a path that we feel that we need to be secure or happy in this world. And the forces that work on us, you know, both spiritually, uh, but I think in culture and family are so powerful in that regard that they become driving forces for us that keep us moving towards those things to the neglect of the self and others. And, uh, uh, you know, putting off life uh, for, you know, going to college and accruing a great debt. You know, I've known students who've come out with close to $200,000 in debt with a degree in uh, philosophy and a master's degree in philosophy, and not, not taking anything away from that. But, you know, they've hobbled themselves, you know, in terms of uh, any, you know, pursuing any future vocation or, you know, buying a home for themselves, a family, that it can be oppressive and lead to this underlying despair that they have every single day of their life. And so I think Ashley's right, right on the mark here that uh, we're constantly pursuing these things, but not really living. And, um, you know, some of the happiest uh, people that I've known have lived the more simple life uh, in terms of work and often, you know, blue collar jobs and things like this, where there wasn't this constant drive to move up the ladder, that sometimes work is work and it allows space and room for the things that have greater value. Or even if they weren't blue collar workers, that they weren't climbing that ladder and maneuvering for the higher position because they were satisfied with, again, with the things that had greater value for them. And uh, I think, again, we've lost sight of that. And people want everything very quickly. 
instead of like getting married and buying a house that has a few rooms in it. And you start with that without strapping yourself with an enormous amount of debt or pushing yourself into, you know, uh, bankruptcy. You know, that living simply and working towards something greater over time has this meaning and value that binds families together, spouses together, uh, and allows people to focus upon sometimes the simpler things of life. And I see couples do this a lot anymore, you know, moving to ways of life that are outside of their particular field because they offer more simplicity. And, uh, and there's something to be said for that. We often will complicate our life, lives because of the promise of certain things, either in terms of sense of dignity, self-esteem, identity, or money. So it's a little after 8.30, and uh, I don't like to rush through these ones even that are very short. Uh, so I don't wanna to go too much further than this anyways. Okay, thank you all. It was some very powerful material. I got a lot that's good to go back over many times. And certainly I'm sure things will emerge that, you know, certainly I didn't pick up on. So thank you and have a wonderful week, everybody. And what we close as always with the grand name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, amen. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil, amen. The Lord be with you. May Almighty God bless you, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen. Go in peace.